Thank you. Thank you, Sanctuary Choir. Thank you. Ah, there is inherent danger in advanced planning. Eight months ago, I said yes to preaching on the first week of Advent. See, Troy wanted to go and visit family and introduce Michael to his cousins-to-be. I said, sure, I'll preach, no problem. About two months ago in the staff meeting, we agreed that we would honor World AIDS Day on the last Sunday in November instead of the first Sunday in December. Okay, okay. I hadn't put those two together. <laughs> Until about a, a month ago when I reread the scriptures for today and began my sermon prep. And I thought, oh my God. Um, how in the world am I going to mesh the parousia, the, the second coming of Christ, with World AIDS Day? Yeah, wow. <laughs> I, I couldn't see how that was going to happen or how that was going to come together until about a week ago when I spoke with a friend whose brother had also died from complications of HIV and AIDS. So pray with me as I share what came. In May of 1981, my brother, who also happens to be gay, came home from New York City for my high school graduation. He was proud of me. I was graduating with honors, 11th out of 537. So, <laughs> our whole little nuclear family, my parents, my brother and I, we were sitting around the kitchen table talking about how things were going for him back in New York City. He said that things were going pretty good and that the only thing was that he hadn't been feeling too good lately. He said that he had gone to the doctor before he came uh, for the graduation, but things just weren't settling with him. My mother, being my mother, was immediately concerned because you see, she knew that my brother hated going to the doctor and if he went to the doctor, something was going on. Well, he told my mother, it's okay, you know, the doctor has given me some antibiotics. And what the doctor believed was that he had something called cat scratch fever. We had heard that, that never heard about cat scratch fever until now, but we thought, well, he does have a cat, Bella, and he also has a ferret, Red, that, so maybe, just maybe, that makes sense. But the doctor also said something to him that was a little curious. He said he had recently had a spike in people who had cat scratch fever, which was an unusual infection. The doctor had given him some antibiotics about a week ago, but my brother was concerned because he still wasn't feeling right. He had just turned 24 back in May. A couple of weeks later, when I was talking to him during our weekly check-in, I asked him if he was feeling any better, and he said, finally, finally, he was starting to feel more like himself. Well, in July, my girlfriend's brother, who also happened to be gay, I know a lot of gay people, imagine, uh, was diagnosed with what appeared to be 
cat scratch fever. Hmm, well, that's odd. But, you know, I was 18. I didn't give too much thought about that. Then in August, I was talking to my brother about the rigors of acclimating to college and suddenly being in charge of my own life when he shared that one of his friends had suddenly and unexpectedly died. He had not gotten any, a chance to tell this friend goodbye. You know, I met this guy when we went to New York for my brother's graduation, and Alonzo was only 24 years old. They say he died from a, a virulent form of pneumonia. In September, I had just begun coming to resurrection. I was still coming in late and leaving early, and I know none of you can relate to that. I was hiding up in the balcony upstairs at the Decatur location, and I was tentatively nodding at people that I'd seen a time before. And I noticed on the back of the bulletin that it seemed to be that they were having a funeral every week at Resurrection. Then in October and November, it seemed like every other week when I talked to my brother, another one of his friends had died. And then in December, my girlfriend's brother became acutely ill. They put him in ICU, and within four days, he was gone. You see, I'd missed the last opportunity to have dinner with them as a group because I was too busy. In the twit, or this week in Texas, for those of you who are old enough to know what that is, I'll explain it to everybody else. That used to be an LGBT magazine that came out weekly that told you everything that was going on in the clubs around the state of Texas. Well, they started to run an obituary section in the twit. Young men in their 20s and 30s were dying from a new form of pneumonia and rare types of cancer. A few at first, but then more and more and more. By the mid-1982, it was not uncommon to see someone at church on Sunday, hear that they were hospitalized on Wednesday, arrived at church the next Sunday morning to find out that they were dead and to attend their funeral the next week. Their time had been cut short, it seemed to me. By then, we were beginning to hear about SID, severe immune deficiency, and GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. And by year's end, AIDS, acquired immune deficiency. By 1985, I had lost all of my high school male gay friends. Resurrection had presided over more than 400 funerals and memorials during that same four-year period. Sometimes there were three or four funerals a week. During the AIDS epidemic, Resurrection lost a third of its members. It seemed apocalyptic. 
because of how catastrophic this virus was for the gay community here and around the world. So, so many people were dying so young, so untimely. And remembering that devastation, it made me mindful of our scripture for today. See, Matthew has Jesus talking to his disciples about what we've been taught to consider as the second coming of Jesus, about the end times and what events will happen that will accompany Jesus' return. Because Jesus is saying two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left behind. Two women will be grinding mill together. One will be taken and one will be left. For many of us who were a part of the LGBT community or an ally in the 80s, that described the times we were living through during the height of the AIDS epidemic. But our scripture says Jesus tells us to keep watch, not to wait. You see, John Nelson Darby, about 160 years ago, began preaching about the rapture. He taught that these verses foretold the second coming of Christ. He explained that these verses pointed to the end times, a time when Jesus would return as the head of an army, ushering in Armageddon, and that only true believers would be spared the final time of tribulation by being whisked up to heaven. The taking of one and the leaving of another behind. He taught that we as Christians should wait in anticipation and hope of this second coming. Well, I disagree with Darby. Jesus doesn't tell us to wait in this scripture. He says that we are to go about our daily routines of marrying, and working, and laughing, and praying. We are to pay attention. We are to be alert. We are to practice a holy watchfulness. It was about 1,800 a, a years of teaching and understanding Jesus as the Prince of Peace that Darby wanted us to discard to believe that Jesus was coming back as a warrior. He was moving from peace to war, from saving the world to destroying it. You see, I believe that the second coming of Christ has already happened and it is known as what we call Easter. But that's another sermon. So... <laughs> So for me, when we interpret the text to mean that we are to wait in expectation, I believe we miss the larger point of these parables, the one that I, we read about in our scriptures today and the one that sanctuary choirs sang about. They're all grouped together, and they are called the Olivet Discourse. I believe we misunderstand what Jesus is saying because we take the phrase son of humanity to mean specifically Jesus, not a broader context of the children of humanity. 
I believe that Jesus calls us into this time, the season of Advent, which means the arrival of a notable person by imploring us to be watchful and ready to respond to the divine, which may appear at any time. We are to be ready to offer love through Christ-like action. Sound familiar? But we often forget that the divine resides within each one of us. Jesus implores us to live our lives in response to the love God has shown us in and through the life of Jesus. So living a Christ-like life doesn't mean standing around, staring into space, waiting for Jesus to come again while being unaware of our surroundings, oblivious to the hungry, the poor, the despondent, the homeless, the prisoner, the person living with HIV. Living a Christ-like life doesn't mean waiting for Jesus to come and fix things because the problems seem too large for any one person to do anything about. Living a Christ-like life means that we are to recognize the divine in everyone. We are to see the divine in the one who is homeless, the one who is hungry, the one who is poor, the one who is in prison, and the one who is HIV positive. It is our responsibility to tell and show them the love of God that has been shown to us through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I believe this is the point Jesus is trying to make because he ends this teaching moment, this entire discourse in Matthew 25, 35 to 45, which we may know as the parable of the sheep and the goats or, depending on your, your tradition, the final judgment. Jesus says, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you welcomed me. And when I was naked, you gave me clothes. When I was sick, you took care of me. And when I was in jail, you came and visited me. They asked, Jesus, when, when did we see, when did we give you something to eat or drink? When did we welcome you as a stranger or give you clothes to wear or visit you when you are sick or in jail? Jesus answered them by saying, whenever you did it, for any of my people, no matter how unimportant they seemed, you did it for me. I believe busyness, like death, can be a thief. And Jesus is calling us to be mindful, awake to, and alert about the theft of our attention and our time. This season of Advent, we are being asked to watch and pay attention to the wonder that unfolds all around us in nature and in 
each other. Each day is a gift. Sometimes we get so busy with life that we allow opportunities to be present with others whom we love and who love us as well as those who are in need. We allow it to slip through our fingers, gone forever. And then we wonder how we let it all happen. That time, that opportunity, that life, gone forever. One of the things I remember so vividly about the 80s is the care offered and the mobilization of the LGBT community as we paid attention and practiced presence as we responded to the need to care for and comfort our siblings who were dying. Many would have died alone because, you see, their families had discarded them. We were there when they needed us the most. MCCers around the world were some of the first to respond to the AIDS epidemic, and many MCCers founded advocacy groups that offered these sons and daughters of humanity a gentle touch and unconditional love. And that's what we are called to do. We're called to touch the untouchable and to love the unlovable. I was present with my brother as he transitioned from this life. I saw him struggle to stay here, and I knew that it was about him not wanting to leave my mom. But I knew it was the time for him to go. So I got in the hospital bed with him, and I whispered in his ear that I promised that I would be watchful to my mother, that I would spend time with her, that I would take care of her. I told him it's okay for you to go. He stopped struggling. I was watchful and alert as he breathed his last breath. My brother died in July of 1991. He was only 34 years old. Was his death untimely? Yes. But his life was wonder-filled. May we go likewise. <laughs>